Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Stuart, Sean, great to be in conversation with you. Our first Hub Roundtable of 2023. Hey guys, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, guys. Big news, Sean, in your household over the holidays, you introduced um, your second astronaut into the uh, the Sean Spear landing craft. Uh, how how's it going? How's mom? How's uh, the new uh, the new babe? Yeah, thanks for asking. We're we're doing great here. Um, mom is 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 doing well. Uh, William Ernest is uh, ha- happy and healthy, and his younger brother or his older brother rather. Uh, EJ is uh, a, a, pa- a proud big brother, as is as is his dad. So things are things are going great here. Thanks to the team for uh, giving me a bit of a break on last week's roundtable. I noted that uh, the numbers were really strong, which may tell us that I'm I'm the weak link on this weekly <laughs> conversation. But either way, I'm glad to be back. Hey, great to have you. Well, look, I three topics I want to dive into on today's show, just to kind of catch us up and. Start the new year with a bang. So on this show, we promise to get to the Jordan Peterson bust up with the Ontario College of uh, Psychologists. Uh, that's one we got to touch on for you. And also the uh, the reporting out um, by Paul Wells, the CBC and others about a kind of splurge at the in the federal government on private consulting firms. What does this mean? What's going on here? We'll bring that to you in today's edition of the Roundtable. But I want to start with the news of Friday, the day we're recording. The 6th of January, Canadian labor market just crushes forecasts with over 100,000 new jobs in December. Uh, really surprising analysts beating expectations uh, significantly. we got an all-time low uh, jobless rate. Some people saying, and I'll come to you first on this, Sean, that you know, good news is kind of bad news these days because it suggests that the central bank is going to have to continue with rate hikes, the rate hikes that are punishing us in terms of our mortgage payments, our credit card bills, you name it. Those rate hikes, Sean, maybe are not over on the basis of this continuing, somewhat bewildering, strong job growth. Yeah, that's right. Um, Tiff Macklem said is uh, prior to the, the holiday break um, that he was counting on a recession. Um, to essentially restore price stability in the Canadian economy. And these numbers uh, would suggest um, that we're not quite there yet, um, that the economy is still running pretty hot, at least as far as the labor market goes. Uh, and so, you know, as another data point into the Bank of Canada's uh, monetary policy planning, uh, one can't help but think that this pushes in the direction of at least another rate hike and, and perhaps more um, if uh, this uh, hot labor market persists. And Stuart, it's a kind of strange political calculus that comes out of this because, um, you know, by all accounts, despite the pall that inflation has cast over a lot of our thinking about the economy, maybe your own personal finances, 
the fact is the Canadian economy is going great guns here. And I wonder how you think coming to us from Ottawa, how this plays out, um, you know, in the political kind of ping pong game uh, across the Rideau River there. I mean, does this suggest that, I don't know, that this government, the Trudeau government is in fact riding, surfing on uh, some decent underlying uh, economic strength in the Canadian economy. Yeah, I, I think that is right. Um, the problem with that is that it's innately temporary. There's no way that you know good stuff continues being good because at some point inflation gets to a point where it becomes a catastrophe. And the other side of the equation is the recession, which no um, prime minister wants to be in charge of a recession. I think if I were Justin Trudeau, I'd probably be thinking along the lines of Tiff Macklin, which is that you know, you'd want a small recession, something that we could ride out and then build from. And if you look at the timelines associated with the deal with the NDP and just the sort of natural, you know, length of what we expect from Trudeau on this kind of electoral cycle, you could imagine a world in which you get a small recession, you build from there, we start to get optimistic again, and then we have a federal election. So I think that's probably what they're thinking right now. Yeah, I think the key thing for everyone to focus on is not simply the number of jobs created, but wage growth, because that's really what the central bank is worried about, is that wage price spiral. And what we saw in this report was hourly wages um, up again, albeit you know a small tick up, but 5.1% uh, over a year earlier, seventh straight month of increases. So this to me, Sean, is really baffling because... You know, we were all told going into this, the Canadians had so much debt that these rate hikes would really have an immediate, strong kind of curbing effect on the economy and on inflation. And here we are going into potentially our next rate hike at the end of this month. And wages are up again over seven straight months. It's just, it doesn't seem to be working. I mean, this just, I don't know, it just, I, I can't figure out why it's not biting yet in terms of um, the effects of these extraordinary hikes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I talked to David from about this um, late in 2022. And the one observation he made, which, which uh, listeners may find interesting is, is that this is the first time that we've had to fight inflation in a world in which the labor supply is either flatlined or even shrinking. Um, and so even if we do uh, have these uh, pressures in terms of rising interest rates on the economy, the supply demand uh, dynamic within the labor market is still going to put pressure on wages as employers are competing for uh, scarce labor. And that kind of changes the dynamic a little bit and may in fact only reinforce, I think, the point that you were making, Rudyard, that, that, that we may need to see even um, higher interest rates to try to offset this kind of more secular trend within the labor market. If I can just make one wonky point, though, I, I apologize in advance. I am a bit skeptical about the December numbers in the sense that I think Statistics Canada probably does need to do a bit of a deep dive into the into the labor force survey, which is the means by which we assess uh, hiring and, and unemployment in the Canadian economy. Uh, you know, it seems to me we have these spikes. Um, in December, June, and other kind of moments over the course of the year that are supposed to be uh, adjusted for in the model, um, but then they always reappear. And so, you know, you mentioned earlier that estimates we were going to see a 5,000 
increase in employment uh, in the month of December, 100,000. I, I bet you in January, we actually see it fall such that it it kind of offsets itself in a way. So I, I don't want to um, in any way contradict some of the comments I've already made, but I do think that there is a lot of noise here and probably a sign that Statistics Canada needs to kind of do a bit of a deep dive in the way that it collects and presents uh, what's going on in the labor market. Yeah, there's a raging debate in the United States over something very similar between the BLS, the the big kind of labor survey, you know, versus others that show this huge like million job gap in terms of job creation over the last year. Everyone's trying to figure it out. No one quite knows which data set is right. My final comment on this is I, I had one stat over the last week or so of reading about economics that really started to make a lot of this inflation and maybe what comes next makes sense to me. And it's the following, that between the great financial crisis and the start of COVID, the U.S. labor force had roughly 9, 10 million people um, come into the labor force as uh, new participants. And that really suppressed you know, wage growth demand because there were a lot of workers there that were available to fill jobs. And compared to past decades, it was a significant increase in the labor force. This stat, again, just blows your mind. 98% of that 9 to 10 million uh, growth in the labor force over that decade was amongst workers 55 and older. Again, I'll repeat that. 95% of the growth of the labor force was 55 or over. And the thesis is that these people were destroyed in the great financial crisis. They lost you know, their retirement savings and they had to work longer. Well, guess what? They've worked longer. They've gotten a lot older over the last decade and they permanently exited the labor force. And I think that is also happening in Canada. And I think it suggests, again, that uh, unfortunately, these higher rates are going to have to stick around for longer because, as you said, Sean, just structural problems here, labor force participation, really, really struggling. Well, look, let's put a pin in that topic and jump on to our next. And I know it's a favorite of Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. He was looking at it closely this week. Some interesting reporting out about a 30-fold spike in uh consulting firm uh, McKinsey's contracts with the federal government. This is a kind of blue chip, state-of-the-art uh, global consulting firm that provides uh, supposedly bespoke in-depth insights to government and corporate clients on specific policy challenges. Uh, Stuart, why does this story kind of interest you and what do you think is really at stake here in terms of Ottawa increasingly outsourcing a policymaking to third parties like McKinsey? Yeah, well, the first thing I think that we need to make sure we note is that this is happening, all this outsourcing is happening while the public service is growing, um, which is not usually why you outsource things. We've done that at the hub sometimes, but it's because we don't want to hire someone to do something temporary or you know something along those lines. Um, we're not hiring someone we're not outsourcing to someone to things that we already have hired someone for. Um, the other thing I think is it's worth, um, if, if you YouTube it, you can see Steve Jobs had some thoughts on consultants and he was sort of against them in principle. Um, he was telling young people, don't go be a consultant. And he was saying at Apple, we don't use consultants. And the reason for that is they are sort of inherently short term. They're not people who come into your organization and understand it and love it and want it to do well. They're going to do something short term to solve a problem, and then they're going to go away to work on something else. And 
if you look at this, you know, we're talking about the immigration department and the federal government. I think you can maybe see some of that short-term thinking happening where we're raising immigration rates. Um, and a lot of the reasoning for that is based on very short-term things that came out of the pandemic. So we're not actually talking about um, the effect on the country, what it matters 10 years from now, what it'll look like 20, 30, 40 years from now. And these are the kind of discussions you need to have, um, but we're not because we're solving short-term problems here. Sean, but the here and now interests me. I mean, what's going on here? I mean, we have this administrative state, you know, a large federal civil service that's arguably tasked with coming up with kind of policy solutions and implementation to um, the democratically elected government of the day's uh, kind of agenda. Doesn't this all seem slightly sinister in a way? Like you're, you're creating a kind of shadow government that exists separate from the administrative state, separate from its checks and controls, maybe arguably more cued and responsive to, you know, the political class that after all are asking that these contracts be approved in the first place. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I'd say two things. Uh, first, um, you know, I think it is an indictment of the current system. Um, you know, that the Trudeau government has uh, it, it, it apparently decided that the federal public service isn't capable of producing the kind of policy analysis and underlying economic analysis and so on that it needs to carry out its agenda. It speaks to a state capacity problem that we've uh, written and talked about at the Hub. The second thing I'd say, just to push back a little on Stuart, um, uh, you know, there's a kind of conception of a company like McKinsey as being these wonky technocrats that are basically kind of value neutral in terms of their uh, underlying assumptions and and the way in which they think about these issues. There, you know, one might think of them as kind of quants for hire, but the truth is. McKinsey has a kind of normative worldview, right? It, it is the quintessential place for um, whom David Goodhart called the anywheres uh, uh, in contradistinction to the so-called somewheres. And so, you know, on immigration is an, an example that Stuart rightly raised. Canada's relationship with China, uh, one can't help but uh, think has been influenced by this significant inf presence of McKinsey within the, the kind of policymaking apparatus. And there's a whole host of other examples, I suspect, that kind of is in, inherently pushing the government in a direction that may not reflect the, the interests of, of everyday Canadians. And so I, I think you're right, uh, Rudyard, to describe it as, um, as something really worth drilling into. What are the implications? What, how does it influence not just specific policy outcomes, but more fundamentally, the kind of ethos of policymaking in Ottawa? Yeah, well, a rant and a question. Uh, the rant is that it seems that the Department of National Defense paid McKinsey several million dollars for leadership development. Like, it's the military. That's arguably what one of their core competencies is supposed to be, to develop future uh, leaders from corporals to captains to colonels. And here they are paying McKinsey millions of dollars for leadership development. I mean, come on, guys. They can pay on. the hub. We can tell them just stop sexually harassing people. There, there you go. There's, yeah. there's $7 million worth of advice. It just suggests some real rot. And I guess my question for you, Stuart, is it, it turns out that it, it seems at least that 18 of these contracts since 2021 worth more than $45 million 
are all sole source. How does that work? Like, I thought there were limits on sole sourcing and that, I don't know, I guess there's ways around this. But again, it just seems very opaque here that you've got large contracts going to, uh, let's be fair here. It's not just McKinsey. There are other, lots of other consulting companies, as we saw around the ArriveCan app, sole sourced. It just, I don't know, guys, I, I, we can't get the public service back you know, in office more than two days a week. And now we're outsourcing tens of millions of dollars of arguably work that they should be doing to third parties so that they can manage and oversee that work. I mean, come on. Yeah, uh, there there is sort of an old boys club aspect to this, too, where, you know, Dominic Barton was a big wig at McKinsey and was then the ambassador to China um, for Canada. And there's a that's a clique. That's a liberal clique that um, I'm sure it's just natural for them to be giving off these contracts and finding loopholes to get the the sole source contracts out. And I think, you know, maybe, maybe this is an optimistic take, but I think there's been kind of a demystifying of places like McKinsey, McKinsey in particular, um, you know, there's been a few little scandals, but also I find in the world of social media, media, we're demystifying everything. You know, you have a favorite columnist and then you get on Twitter and he's complaining about Uber Eats or something like that. And it kind of ruins that mystique that you had. Um, there's a democratizing effect, but then also, you know, we're looking at this company that we thought were all quants and whiz kids, like Sean said, maybe not so much. And I, I think that the trouble for the liberals here is that they're, I think they've kind of avoided that old boys club um, optics that, plagued them uh, in previous governments. So um, it, it's not a huge problem for them right now, but it certainly could be if this kind of stuff keeps up. Can I just take up that point quickly? Um, because I do think uh, Stuart's right that it reflects in some ways a, a distance, a growing distance between the Justin Trudeau that presented himself in 2015 and Justin Trudeau who presides over the country in 2023. Uh, in the 2015 Liberal Party platform, the platform that took them from third place to first, um, the, the Liberals committed to, quote, reducing the use of external consultants, bringing expenditures to 2005, 2006 levels. Uh, of course, that promise failed to materialize and, and the opposite is, has happened. And I think, you know, there are a number of these cases where um, where the, the government has failed to kind of live up to its own lofty expectations. And any not any one of them is necessarily in and of itself disqualifying. But as we've talked about on this show, in the past, the kind of cumulative effect, I, I think, makes the government vulnerable to the types of criticisms about cronyism um, that Stuart just outlined. Yeah. And look, I'm just surprised that the civil service <laughs> itself isn't standing up here because effectively the government's saying, well, I don't know, we either think you're incompetent, we don't trust you. Um, it is this, this is a kind of humiliation of the senior ranks of the public service saying, and effectively, you can't do this thinking. So we're outsourcing it. Wow. Okay, quick break. When we come back on the other side, our final topic of the show, Jordan Peterson making news, a big debate brewing between him and the College of Psychologists of Ontario. We'll break that down for you right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. 
Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome to the Hub Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Guys, final topic for the show. I want to um, touch on uh, your thoughts on this brewing debate uh, around Jordan Peterson. The Ontario College of Psychologists has basically, I don't know, how do you put this any other way than stuck their foot in it. in a sense, responding to uh, a series of um, complaints that were submitted to them about uh, Jordan Peterson's public comments on podcasts like Joe Rogan's on social media, uh, effectively accusing him of causing harm to people based on his views on such topics as obesity, climate change, you know, the usual list. Uh, Sean, I'm really fascinated by this like what the heck is the ontario uh psychologists uh council think they're doing here i mean like a just from a communications perspective how the heck do you win a fight against jordan peterson on this terrain and second what does it say about you know the kind of culture of free speech in our society today yeah i would note that um just as we're speaking pierre polyev has released a video seizing on this issue. I predicted in my end of year predictions that Polyev would expand his lines of uh, arguments and messages um, from the economy to this set of issues, which can be hard to define identity politics, social justice, wokeism, however one describes it. We kind of broadly know what we're talking about. And it seems to me we increasingly see these elite institutions kind of overstep uh, on these types of issues. And they are, we're seeing uh, Francis, Francois Legault in Quebec pushing back and turning it into a kind of political win for him. And I suspect we'll see uh, more of that from Polyev in, in 2023. And I think smart progressives, um, including some in the federal caucus who have, who've already raised alarms about this tendency to devolve into uh, identity type politics, uh, will try to uh, themselves um, put some parameters because I, I I do think this is an issue and a kind of set of issues um, that ordinary Canadians are going to say like what the heck is going on here? Uh, uh, why can't someone like Jordan Peterson say what he wants on a a podcast without uh, it threatening his professional life? Yeah, what's strange here, Stuart, is one that you know Peterson's saying that he's effectively closed down any kind of private practice of psychology. Um, as far back as 2017, 2018. And, you know, these are complaints submitted, really a dozen people, and it's not about harm to them. It's about harm, perceivably, that they subjectively feel that he is causing to others. And this is a guy that, I don't know how many millions of followers he has on social media or the reach of his YouTube channel. It just, it seems like a bizarre thing to try to police. And it seems well outside the ambit of, 
what you would expect a professional association to actually be concerned about, which might be legitimately, if he is practicing, how is he interacting with clients? Is he doing something inappropriate with those clients? I don't know. I mean, that's where you think that the bailiwick of their prov of their provenance would would lie. Yeah, I, I think probably the two main things motivating this are it's sort of an attempt to enforce ideological conformity. And these are like probably in any normal procedure, these would be vexatious complaints. And I think the second thing is that, you know, we haven't had a lot of big public intellectuals from Canada. Um, there's been a couple of notable ones, but P I don't think anything compares to Peterson when you consider book sales. And, you know, I happen to be at the National Post when every now and then he would write for us. And I hope my old bosses don't get mad at me for revealing proprietary information, but like 50,000 page views was about the floor for a Jordan Peterson piece. And, you know, that kind of easy stuff, it's just so hard to come by. Um, and I think there is a certain amount of envy among academics who kind of wish they had that. And it just boils their blood that a kind of right leaning guy who, you know, tells young men to make their beds is <laughs> the guy who kind of made it. Um, the one thing that troubles me about this, though, is the reaction of journalists. When I was in J school, we were talking about, um, you know, Ezra Levant having trouble with the Human Rights Tribunal. And we were, I think, probably about split of 50-50 on that issue. Now, it just seems to me that um, the idea of free speech is just not pertinent um, in the sense that if it's someone you disagree with, you're more likely to see reasons to shut them down. I think it's a really troubling development. Yeah, well, look, there's a bit of karma here because I think the Ontario College is going to have, um, well, just months of misery on their hands. I mean, Elon Musk is tweeting about this, okay? So you can just imagine what's happening to their phone board, their social media feeds. Um, uh, but hey, I guess somebody there in their wisdom decided, uh, you know, this was a fight they want to take on. I think my concern, Sean, I'll give you the last kick this can is, is that it suggests that these professional associations and groups really do see themselves having this ambitious ambit of responsibility. When it comes, you know, we, we could talk about what happened with the Ontario Law Society and, and it's kind of crazy um, attempt to kind of mandate diversity on its members. Ultimately, the Law Society membership revolted and replaced the entire board. And, and, and uh, those policies were, you know, dead as a doornail. But it, it all kind of, to me, suggests this like professional creep um, where people are getting out way outside of their lanes they're pursuing political agendas. And what worries me, Sean, is they just seem so utterly clueless about their own clear subjective bias yes. that they're that they're pushing. It's, I don't know, it's regrettable that the associations, which should be in, you know, amalgamations of individuals that should be nonpartisan, non-ideological, have kind of succumbed to the culture wars, yet they're completely unaware of it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. One of our um guests on hub dialogues uh in 2022 was tyler cowan um you know the um, american economist and, and popular writer uh and he made the case late in the year that we had probably reached something approaching what he called peak wokeness and it seems to me you kind of have to go through you can't go around and you know if you can take a silver lining out of this issue is it may 
um, given the pushback that you just outlined, which I think is precisely what's going to happen uh, to this to this association, hopefully it sends a signal to other groups um, to stick to their knitting and not get into the business of ideological enforcement. Um, if they do that, I think our public discourse um, and our professional lives um, will be healthier for it. Absolutely. Here, here. Well, uh, Stuart, what are readers going to see next week in the hub? What stories are you uh, excited to be debuting in per diem, our daily email that's available to subscribers? Uh, and uh, of course, on our website each and every day, Monday through Saturday. Uh, watch out for that piece from me on uh, Pierre Polyev's plans for the CBC. I think that's something that has been under discussed um, in terms of the actual policy that we might see there. Um, and then we have some good opinion pieces to sort of kick off the year and one by one of my favorite writers that we haven't had in a while because she's been very busy, but uh, Kaylin Ford will be writing for us next week. So keep your eyes peeled for that one. Awesome. Well, thanks guys. Great to kick off the year with you. This first episode of the roundtable for 2023. Uh, who knows what the next 51 weeks are going to uh, bear in terms of uh, events, but we will be with you, Hub listeners, uh, each and every week uh, to try to unpack the news, hopefully leaving you with some new analysis and insights. Thanks again for your time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Roger Griffiths executive director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.